in this Revelation chapter 1. So we'll read together now from that chapter, Revelation chapter 1. The subject that has been stated is the divine person who walks in the churches. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear, the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and a girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And we know that God always loves to bless the reading of his precious word. As for today we turn to the book of Revelation, it might be a little higher. As we turn to the book of Revelation today, we should keep in our mind that we are turning to the closing part of the word of God. Now we know from that the book of Genesis is what we might call the seed plot of the Bible. It has often been pointed out that there are many, that all the great seeds of truth that are later developed in the word of God are somewhere or other found in that opening book. It has been described that the book of Revelation is like the harvest field. Everything is coming to fruition in this book. If you like, we have of the book of Genesis, the book of Origins. But when we turn to the book of Revelation, the book of Conclusions. Now, we are not going to look in general today at any of those things. We want to come more immediately to get down to the passage that is under our consideration. But we should say at the beginning one or two broad things about this great book. We know, for instance, that it is a book that unveils the person of Christ. After all, you've often heard uh, brethren, and you may have heard or read from various commentaries, that so often this book is called the Apocalypse. And the reason it's called the Apocalypse is simply because the Greek word for this word revelation is a word that is apocalypsis, and it simply means to unveil. So this is a revelation, it is an unveiling. And we know who gave it, because it states it very clearly in the first verse. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. And then we know, too, that it was given unto him to show unto his servants. We're going to see as we continue today that uh, the people of God are known as the saints, and we are known as the children of God, and we're the sons of God, and there are many titles but it's as servants that the emphasis is placed in this particular book. And we'll notice, for instance, that we're going to see in our chapter and the expression used of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. And whilst he has wonderful robes that are described in this passage, they are not so much the robes of the priest, 
but the robes of a judge. And the Son of Man links our Lord Jesus Christ with earth. You remember that Luke predominantly uses that expression in his gospel. And we know that uh, that lovely verse that we think of in the gospel, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we know from the Old Testament and the New that the Word of God links this, this term Son of Man with, of Christ to the earth. And we can see as we look at these three chapters that we're going to think of seven churches. And when we come to these seven churches we're going to see that each of them are in testimony on earth. Some have tried to make them synagogues and said that they belong. Some people believe, I must say this, I hope it's not going to be raised in the Bible reading, but if it is, we'll have to talk about it. But some people believe that this term we are going to find in chapter 1 is not the, the, where we read the Lord's day, that it's the day of the Lord. And they see that everything's projected into the future, and no longer will there be assemblies in the future, but there will be sort of gatherings like the synagogue. Now, I don't believe that's right at all. I am convinced that these seven churches that we read about are just what we know as New Testament assemblies. And I'll tell you my reason for saying that, that we know the first one is to the church which is at Ephesus. Now we know there was a New Testament assembly that was planted at the end of 18 and beginning of 19 of the book of Acts. And if you go to the last of these seven churches, we find there is one in a place called Laodicea down in that Lycus Valley where Colossae and Hierapolis was. And we know again that there was an assembly at Laodicea because we find it referred to in the Colossian epistle. And to me, that shows that the first and last embraced them all, and we're not thinking about seven synagogues, we're going to be thinking these days about seven churches. But we'll come to that a little later on. I wanted to say in introduction some broad things, and we'll try not to be too long with them, that I was taught as a young Christian, and many others have been taught the same, that we should have some acquaintance with the three great sevens of the Bible. There are the seven feasts of Jehovah, which are in Leviticus chapter 23. There are the seven parables of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. And then we come to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. Now, if you look at the seven feasts uh, of Jehovah in Leviticus 23, you will notice that that chapter begins with a Sabbath, and it ends with a Sabbath. And the Sabbath is that which reminds us of God at rest. It reminds us of that which is eternal. And uh, when we look in studying the seven feasts of Jehovah, we are taken from eternity to eternity. It's the broadest program you could see as you think of that series of seven. When you come to the seven parables of Matthew chapter uh, 13, it is, they are parables of the kingdom. And it starts with the sower going forth to sow, and I think in that we particularly see the ministry of the Lord Jesus when he came, but it takes us far beyond the church period and takes us into days that go on beyond the church, so it's a much narrower program than we have in the seven feasts. But when we come now to these seven churches, we are looking at a period. Now listen to this carefully. We are looking at a period, because this is our study these days, 
which is what we might call the church period. We speak about the dispensation of grace. Now, that expression is not in the Scripture. But we do speak also of the day of salvation, which is in the Scripture. We'll find it in Isaiah 49. We would find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 6, the end of chapter 6. So is it the beginning of chapter 7? So we have then in these studies today the study of the church period. Now you're going to say, give us a reason for that. Is there some reason in the Bible to say that this is the church period? Well, I am old-fashioned enough to believe that the, one of the main keys to this book is in the 19th verse of chapter 1. Have a look at it for a moment. We've read it. Chapter 1, verse 19. John is instructed after the vision is over to write. And he's told to write three particular uh, sections, if you like. Write the things which thou hast seen. Now there's the first thing that John must write about. Secondly, and the things which are, present tense, which are. And thirdly, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now I think that's very vital to the understanding of this book. The things which thou hast seen. Well, it's 19, it's verse 19, and the past tense is being employed. It's the vision of chapter 1 that is referred to in the first section. John used to write chapter 1, he's being told, if you like, putting it in our parlance today. Write chapter 1. And after you've written chapter 1, then you're to write next another section which is about the things which are. Now I'm suggesting to you, and I'll give a reason in a moment, but my suggestion to you is that the things which are, he's really being told, write chapters 2 and 3. Now I'm using our parlance, they went in chapters, but you follow what I mean. Write chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 being the period which is covered by the seven churches. Now you say, well, give a reason for that, because look at the third section, and then you are to write the things which shall be hereafter. Now if you comb these chapters, you will see you come now through them and you come to the first verse of chapter 4 and that is after this, after that period of chapters 2 and 3 are over. A door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. Rather, rather interesting language, a trumpet. Talking with me, which said, Come up and hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Here is the third section of the book commencing at chapter 4. The things which shall be hereafter. Some have said, and I have heard them say, they have said that on a number of occasions in this book, we read about things which shall be hereafter. But this is the first time it's found after that statement that was made in chapter 1, verse 19. So I'm submitting to you that the book divides into three very unequal sections in length, but three very important sections, the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So will you keep that in your mind now? We're looking over these days at the present day, and of course chapter 1, the vision, which is today, but the remainder of the reading, starting with Mr. Gilliland later today, will be looking at 
the present day, the things which are. Well, what is in the seven churches? Well, some have viewed these seven churches, uh, as we have said, as synagogues, but I think we've discounted that, and I hope all are going to discount it. Some have said that this is a, an overview of the present day of grace. Now, I think there's too much in it to say, there's too much in the chapters to show some correspondence to say that that view must be rejected completely. But having said that, we must be very careful about it because there are many views that we could take, and I'm not going to take time today to suggest them, that we could take to, to, to look at the, the ways in which these seven churches can be seen. For instance, uh, we could look at the seven periods that we're going to think of in chapters 2 and 3 and see them all fit into the book of Genesis. And it could be done quite easily. And it wouldn't be difficult to do it. We, uh, we, we could link it with men that are in the book of Genesis. We could also take a survey of the Old Testament and find the Old Testament is described under those seven churches. For instance, let me give you the clue. Look at Ephesus, for instance. And you read... Uh, of, uh, from, from, it speaks of from whence thou art fallen well we all preach about the fall it takes us to the beginning of the book of Genesis I will put thee out of thy place you remember Adam was put out of the garden thou hast left thy first love Adam's first love was not Eve it was God so you can see this, the idea of uh, the book of Genesis there in Ephesus and when you come to Smyrna it's not too stretching the imagination to see Israel in the fires of persecution in Egypt in, in, at the beginning of the book of Exodus. You can see a correspondence ten days, the ten plagues, and so on. You can look at correspondence there. And when you come next to Pergamos, you find that Israel is, uh, you, you find Israel is now in the wilderness. And so you're going to read about the hidden manor, and you're going to read about Balak, and so on. And then when you come to Thyatira, Israel is in the land. And so you've got Ahab and, and, and the wife and so on. And you can see there's an unfolding of Israel's history. Sardis was, of course, the dead church. They, that's what we're usually told. And it's Israel down in Babylon when there was little for God. And when they did come eventually back, the first thing they found was that the names were written. In the book of Ezra, they opened the scroll and they read the names again. And that's the promise to the church at Sardis. And Philadelphia is the return. The open door, I have set before thee an open door. Uh, and of course, when you come to, to Laodicea, you can see Malachi with all its departure again. Uh, and backsliding. So, so, you can see the Old Testament in it. You follow the point I'm making? We've got to be very careful when we make views looking at the dispensational side because there's many ways in which we can look at it. And I'm not suggesting we throw but it won't be in my hands, of course, but I don't think our brethren will want to be looking at all these different things in their Bible readings, and that's why I'm mentioning them now in the introduction. What I want to suggest to you is that I believe we have seven representative assemblies. We know that in Asia there were more assemblies than seven. For instance, in that Lycus Valley, we, there were probably three assemblies, if you read Colossians 4 carefully, there was probably Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea. I think the language suggests there were three assemblies there. So there was far more assemblies in Asia than seven, but seven are raised. And in one sense, they're samples of any, at any given time. If you look throughout the world, there are some assemblies in an Ephesus condition, even today. 
I've been in an assembly more than one, but particularly one I'm thinking of, a long, long way from here, where there seems to be Ephesus conditions. You, and God is saving souls. And but soon I can see the evidences even maybe of losing a bit of personal love. And you can look and see that. So what we want to keep in mind as we come to our studies, I believe, over these days, and I think my brethren will be agreeing with this, we're wanting to look at the local assembly. And we're wanting to see the message that there is for the local assembly in each one. Now that's all I want to say about the overview, because I probably, I haven't transgressed the time I've set, but uh, I've probably said more than I should already from that point of view. What I would like us to do now, just for a moment before I sit down, is to divide the chapter. And as we look at this chapter today, I would like us to look at it in four sections. And preachers are often pea-shooters, so I'm going to use the letter P today. And I want us to think, and they're very simple, verses 1 to 3, we'll think about the preface. There is a preface to the book, and here it is in these verses 1 to 3, and that will be our first section. And then we'll look at verses 4 to 8, and I call that the prologue at the beginning of the book, verses 4 to 8. And then we look at verses 9 to 16, and I've just written over that, the person. Because there are some introductory verses to that, but we'll come to the person of Christ himself as the Son of Man. And finally, verses 17 to 20, we'll think about the plan. And that's the plan of the book that I've suggested to you, which is found in the 19th verse, but is led up to from verse 17. Now, as we come to it, let's look first of all at the preface. Now, what I'm going to suggest is that we spend some time looking at these first three verses, and I'll say a little about each section just at the beginning once we sit down now, and then we'll discuss that, and then we'll open each of these sections as we continue. I trust that will be suitable to our brethren who are with me as well. Thank you. Now let us look then, first of all, at the big... Uh, first of all, maybe I should just give the opportunity to my brethren who are here today, three very capable brethren, and with many capable brethren in the audience as well, of course, uh, but just give our brethren here an opportunity to add anything that they wish to the general introduction to the book before we look at these first three verses. Ever keep in mind that the book of Revelation is a book of judgment, and not judgment in the sense of punishment only, but of scrutiny. So that the idea of judgment is, is a theme of the book, and that's a general statement. Yes, and you agree, you, I, I, that's why I put in about the judge, of course. Yes, yes. and we're going to see that. And of course, the number seven is associated with it, the number three, but I've decided those things because of the time. Any general point you want to make, Mr. Bentley? No, I think that what you've said is sufficiently clear, and um, specifically the nature of the introduction, which I feel is very interesting to see that it is in keeping with all that is summed up in a prophetic message. Yes, yes. <laughs> Mr. Bantley is emphasizing here, of course, the fact, and we're going to find it soon, the words of this prophecy, that the whole book is prophetic. I think that's what you have in mind. And one thing we should keep in mind, that it's prophecy written to churches. Yes, exactly. And don't get muddled with that and prophecy written to Israel. Yes. 
That's right, exactly. It is, for the, it is absolutely. That's the point. That is. No, all right. Well, let's, uh, Mr. Gilliland's not going to just take part there, but let's look now, first of all, then, at verses 1 to 3. And notice that in these three verses, we have what I simply call the preface, and notice that it is a revelation, as we've said, and that string that we have of links, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, it's divine in its origin, it's God's will to reveal the glories and the greatness of the person of Christ, to show unto his servants those things which must shortly come to pass, not only his glory, but the events that will come to pass. Mr. McShane has just emphasized for us that it's given for those in assembly fellowship to understand. That's what's presented here. Now notice that he sent and signified it. You could change the reading of that word, if you like, to make it more understandable. He sent and signified it. That's why there are so many signs in the book. It's a book of signs. So he signified it uh, by his angel, through his angel, by his angel, unto his servant John. And then we find uh, John is the one who is bearing record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So here's the setting being brought to us in the book. And the blessing is uh, the one there is a blessing. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, but it's, and to keep those things which are written therein for the time it is hand. Now we're open for questions on those three verses. Preferably verse 1 before verse 3, but we can look at the section. In uh, the Gospel by Matthew, no one knows the Father, save he to whomsoever the Son reveals him. Would this be God now reciprocating what the Son has done. The Son has revealed the Father. Here God gives this revelation to the Son. I can quite see that. As you know in the verse in Matthew we do have the both ideas introduced but here is the emphasis where God is going to unveil, yes, the person of Christ. Mr. Gillian. I was going to ask in verse 1 his servant John and I know I'm jumping, but just the same point, verse 4, John, verse 9, I, John. Huh? And there's maybe somewhere else he mentions John. But our brethren have often reminded us that in the Gospel, John conceals his identity, doesn't mention his own name or any of his relatives. Why does he put so much emphasis upon his name here, do you think? Well, I think your point is rather nice. I hadn't thought of it before, but if, uh, if I have your right, I think you might be suggesting that the man who veiled his own name and only uh, your brother's emphasizing that in the Gospel of John, for instance, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, not that uh, the Lord didn't love the others, but John was conscious of his love and lived in the sensibility of it. But here, uh, God is, is giving the revelation. And I take it that that's what you have in mind, that John is being brought out in that sense. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the spiritual meaning that I just was going to mention in a less important sense about two centuries before the Lord Jesus and in the first century there were a great number of apocalypses the Jews were very fond of apocalypses okay. because of the troubles they went through they had men supposed to have visions and so on of the future and how it would work out and one of the characteristics of those apocalypses was 
that the writer nearly always concealed his name. You get the Apocalypse of Abraham. Some fellow put Abraham's name on. You get the Book of Enoch. You get the book, the Apocalypse of the Life of Adam and Eve. Those are books that are with us still. And there must be about two dozen Apocalypses that are all false names. John says, I'm not afraid to put my name to this. Very good. He said it's personal and direct. That's very good. But I think it's true that you would agree, just before you agree, I think you would agree that it, because God gave it, God intended that John's name would be here. Now, giving of the revelation to the Son was evidently not for to instruct him, but the purpose of it was to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Yeah. So it is given to him for that purpose, yeah. not for enlightenment in that sense. No, 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 quite so. Yeah. Mr. McBride is making an important point that this is not something that the Lord Jesus had to learn, but it's that rather the divine purpose at this point was that it would be communicated to his servants Mr. Baker, would you care to comment on the absence of the title Lord? We normally speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And six times in this chapter we have the name Jesus Christ, and I think indeed throughout the book there is a marked absence of the title Lord. Would you care to comment on that? Well, I had taken it, but you may have some further help to bring, Brother Pryor. But I, as you know, when we read the term Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, the emphasis usually is upon the first name. Now it is Jesus Christ here, it's not. Sometimes the writers show us there's a difference in the order. But it's, Christ, it's Jesus Christ here. And I take it that the emphasis is upon the man that was down here, who is the anointed one of God. So that it, it, it's not down here amongst men, not in the days of his flesh now, of course, but as the Son of Man. Therefore, the terms Jesus Christ are appropriate here. Where we know that God has made that same Jesus both Lord and Christ. But the emphasis is upon his earthly names, because he's moving in an earthly sphere. But our brethren want to add anything to that. Yes, I would have suggested that the uh, emphasis of Jesus Christ shows the instrumentality of the message or the communication. The, the, the title Jesus Christ is usually associated with what is instrumental in the working of God. So here it is showing the authority, first of John, that our brother has mentioned, yes. and the instrumentality, Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yes. The and one through whom that testimony was not only manifested but established. Yes. I think that's helpful, and of course, it would be incongruous in a sense to put Lord in there, because then the resource would have been in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Perhaps we should notice that about eight times in this book that the word Jesus stands alone. Yes, I, Jesus, yes. Yes, even in, in, where the testimony is mentioned in verse, uh, verse 9, it reminds me about Christ. Yes. Now, could you tell me why is Christ Jesus not in the book of Revelation? Well, I, again, I thought that, this has, that all the scenes that are largely brought, apart from chapters 4 and 5, and when you come to the closing chapters, are earthly scenes. So the emphasis is not so much upon his exalted glory here, but it's the place and the work that he will do on earth, the judgment that he will bring to earth, and the, the fruition of the purposes of God to do with earth. You have that? You have that, Mr. Now, you have something to say? 
I was just going to mention the very simple fact that three mention of things in those three verses. Good. Verse one, things which must shortly come to pass, that, as you have said, the content of the book is future. Verse two, things that he saw, that's the character of the book, is visionary, attained by visions. Verse three, things which are written, that's the communication of the book, what he saw was actually put down in writing to those three. That's very good. Thank you. Now, the other thing is, you can uh, maybe comment on this if you like, but uh, uh, blessed is he that readeth. My understanding is that the, 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 the structure as it was written there is the present process for, and it's blessed is he that keeps on reading. Is that, am I right? Well, I'll ask, can I ask you, Brother Baker, another question. Right, what yeah. difference do you make between the he, or what significance is there, blessed is he and they? He that readeth and they that hear. What significance do you see in the change from the singular to the plural in that period? I have taken it that this is not speaking about the chain of people that we've already thought of, but that this is now speaking of those to whom the book will be committed and will be like we, you and I here today. And those who are to teach the word of God must read so that they will be able to communicate that truth to others. But have you got something further on it than that? Is it taken into account that many of the folks that first received this book wouldn't have been able to read? So the man who stood in right, the public right, and yeah. read it, yeah. blessed is he that readeth. I noticed that you read your passage very carefully. Maybe some of us don't pay as much attention to public reading as we should. Blessed is the man who publicly reads and then the congregation that hears. They weren't sitting looking at the Bible as we are. No, I can quite see that, and I like what you've said. I do think it has to do, too, with the, the, the one who reads is the one who will expound it and bring it to the people of God, which fits with what you're saying. Uh, what about the word uh, signify? I would like a little help on that. You, would you take it that that gives us more than just merely pointing it out, or is it pointing out something with symbols now. Yes, that, now. That, that was the hint I tried to give. Now, that means a lot. The okay. idea of signified. I, it's the idea that as the, as the revelation will progress, there will, be, there will be many symbols and there will be many signs that will, sh will, will underpin and will in fact illustrate what is being seen, uh, what is being taught. And so I take it that it is a book that is that is where we have a clear evidence of signs and symbols. Mm -hmm. That what you have in your mind? Well, it's, uh, so many undermine that. That's why I, I don't like it being undermined, but uh, that was how I thought that that helped us in many occasions, that we had attempted to take a thing to the literal, whereas it's symbolic. Yes, yes. Now, the whole book is not symbolic, we, no, we, we, as we you know. But to know the difference between what's symbolic and what is literal. Exactly, that's the point. I mean, we do know, for instance, as we come through these seven churches, that there will even be within these messages to the seven churches, as well as the rest of the book, there will be truth that is symbolic. But we've got to be very careful as we read it and interpret it to see what is literal and what is not literal, and what is symbolic and what is not symbolic. Well, it's uh, an interesting to see the connection with John 12, where the Lord speaks of uh, the Son of Man being lifted up. Uh, now is the judgment. Now shall the Son of Man be lifted up, and then it's added. This is this he said signifying. That is in the lifting up expression. There was a signification Good. beyond just merely <laughs> lifting a person up off the ground. There was more to it than that, and that indicated that 
the type of death he would die. Excellent. Now, there's a good illustration. That's what I'm trying to do. Excellent. Thank you. That's very helpful. Now, I'm going to suggest that we just look near the end of chapter 1, and then we're going to move on. Help us, Jim, with respect to the Word of God, verse 2. Is this the same as verse 9, or is it saying that the revelation is not speculation, it is God's Word? Who bear record of the Word of God. First of all, the, the statement in verse 2 is, I take it that John is bearing record, he's bearing witness to the Word of God that's been communicated in the way that was stated in verse 1. Uh, when we come to verse 9, um, he says, I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God. In other words, he had been doing that already, not with that truth that's now being revealed on the island, but rather the word of God that was his and that, that he'd received and he taught. Yes, that's very helpful, Brother Kenneth. Thank you very much. To the angel, why angel? Why not the Holy Spirit? Why the angel been used here? Well, I don't think I've got an answer to that. I think I've got to wait to see if my brethren can help us. But when it says he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, there clearly is an unusual arrangement of divine revelation here. It is by an angel. Now it is perfectly true, and that's the implication of what our brother has said, that the Spirit of God had been given on the day of Pentecost. So John, by that time, it wasn't before the day of Pentecost, so he was possessed of the Holy Spirit. But God used an angel to bring this ministry to him. I'm not sure that I know the reason. Uh, some of my learned brethren here can help me. You've noticed that it's from God to Christ, yes. to the angel, and to John. That's right. And then to the churches. Yes. Those are the steps. Well, I had thought that that angel appears in the book quite often. In fact, John was going to worship the angels, you remember, and was rebuked for it, and so on. In other words, I take it it was a literal angel. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm not doubting it was a literal angel. Yeah, I think this is a... No, no, I think this is a literal angel. But, but the point is, why is it an angel in the chain of, of, of communication? That's the problem that's been raised. Well, you'll have that to answer when you come to the churches, the angel of the churches. Why not write to the churches direct? Was it, was it anything to do with the fact that later in the book, in God's providential dealings with earth, there's a tremendous scope given to angelic ministry? And because angels are providential beings and so on, it was suitable that an angel was also involved in the revelation of the book. Yes. yes. You do not say, too, that it's characteristic of prophetic communication, such as Daniel and Zechariah and such. The angel, angels are functioning. Yes. So I thought it's characteristic, right into the very end. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things for or in the churches. So it's in the first chapter and the last chapter. Yes, I can it's see that. It's characteristic of that. Yeah, I can see that. My only, the, I have a genuine problem with the question that's been raised in the sense that um, we do know that we have the Holy Spirit today. Yes, so it was just that problem that I'd like to get some help on. I think Mr. Gilliland has come nearest what I was going to suggest ere he spoke. Being characteristically a book of judgment, is it not in keeping with the angel being introduced? If we take the Lord's coming, behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones. holy ones. Are not angels linked up with the administrative purpose of God, particularly in judgment? 
Thank you. And in the in the churches, part of the book, yes, there will be a tremendous emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Oh, there will. There's no doubt about that. We're going to see that. Now, I think that's been well aired, and it's been an interesting. And you've heard what the brethren have to say, and uh, it's a difficult question, a very interesting one that has been raised. And I think we go on from that now. And I would like us now just um, to notice before we leave this preface that notice. <laughs> Blessed is he that readeth, we've commented about, they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now notice that the thought of imminence is introduced at the commencement of the book. And we are always to remember that that is how prophecy is presented to us with the thought of imminence. Now any suggestion on that before we leave that section and move into the next? Mr. Nesbitt. The only difficulty I would have with the reader being a public reader for the benefit of people who couldn't read would be that that would eliminate the personal reading of the book now by each believer. Get my point there? I do, but there must have been a time which is when what Mr. Our Brother Gilliam has introduced was clearly necessary and there were periods like that and there still are. There are parts of the world today where there are believers who still cannot read for themselves. Uh, you know, way in rural India and some of these countries. Yeah, this surely would be applicable to any believer anywhere in the world today. Without a doubt, without a doubt, yes. And those who teach the word of God, as we said. Now we're coming into the can next I, section. Can I ask you, well, Brother Jim, the words of the prophecy of this book, now, these are literal assemblies that will follow in chapter 2, but may I ask just at this stage, would that include something more than the literal circumstances that were involved in the seven churches? The words of the prophecy of this book, does that include, or is there something more involved or will be involved? I know it's Mr. Gillian's passage, but at the very beginning, is there a suggestion that there's more than the literal in chapter 2 and chapter 3 at the beginning? Well, um, it, it, there may be a, a, a hint there, and I, uh, in my introduction, remember, I didn't deny that th there must be some indications of more than that just that is literal for a, a given assembly. So there's a prophetic element even to these seven churches. There is no doubt about that. I'm convinced of that. I just wouldn't like to take it as far as some take it. And... Uh, uh, but having said that, we can see, and I think we will see as we come to the individual messages, and it's probably best to leave it for that, when we get to them, I think we'll see prophecy from time to time it has a, is a definite element, even in the assembly that is being spoken to. Now let's come, please, to verses 4 to 8. And over that I've written the word prologue. Now notice that we've already said seven churches, uh, and, uh, and they're in Asia. Notice that the greeting graced unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come. Now there is God the Father. From the seven spirits which are before his throne, there is God the Holy Spirit. We know from Isaiah chapter 11 that, that we have a description of the sevenfold attributes of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we have those couplets and the, we have the sevenfold aspect of the Spirit of God. And from uh, Jesus Christ, who is, and you'll notice there's a plurality about all these terms, you see, it's a sevenfold Spirit. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, 
it has often been pointed out by our brethren that brings before us Christ as the prophet and the first begotten of the dead Christ as the priest and the prince or the ruler of the kings of the earth Christ as king then we have this ascription of praise a doxology type of statement unto him that loved us and washed us the word washed could be competently translated loosed us from our sins in or by the preposition is one which means by by means of his blood we are not washed in literal blood but we are washed because of the blood we are loosed from our sins because of the blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father now notice that the reading really I think the revised reading is to be preferred has made us a kingdom of priests believers are not individual kings but they are every believer is a priest and it's a kingdom of priests to him be glory and dominion forever then you'll notice we seem to have the statement next very emphatically stated behold he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him I don't think that this is the rapture this is the manifestation when every eye will see him and they also which pierced him have we a reference here to the activity of the nation of Israel and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him uh, and even so amen and verse 8 I am Alpha and Omega appears to be the response that comes from him but we'll be glad to hear what our brethren have to said I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the ending uh, is not in every translation saith the Lord which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty now let's hear what our brethren have to say starting at the beginning of that section if we can and moving through it verse 4 is the only reference to grace until you come to the end of the book is that right? Yes. the last words of the book is the grace of our Lord Jesus so yes. we're in, we begin with grace and we end with grace is that right? yes but why is it absent in the middle part do you think? <laughs> it's judgment not grace but exactly grace. It's, it's, a, it's a whole book of judgment um, but we thank God that grace is addressed to the saints and grace is concluded to the saints at the end Just to, just to confirm that thought then, this is the only time I believe that peace is mentioned in the book and you will not find the word mercy in the book either. No, which all, all adds to the same point I think, yes. Thank you for that. Now let's think about these remarkable titles. Uh, we have the eternity of God, which is, he ever is the self-existent one, he ever was, and he ever will be, which is to come, the Almighty. Uh, uh, well, it's not the Almighty there, but notice the, the expression that is, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Here is the sevenfold aspect of the Spirit of God. And then we have the statements concerning our Lord Jesus. In connection with that first title, Brother Baker, can I ask you, Himmich is, was, and come, can I ask you first really two questions. Why the order, present, past, and future, not what we usually think past, present, and future? Uh, it is past, present, and future in chapter 4, but yes. here, present, past, and future. Then my second question is, why does it not say which is, and which was, and which shall be? Again, using the verb to be. 
which shall be. Why does it say in the third component, which is to come for the future? Well, on the first one, on your first point, I have taken it that it's it's from him which is. Because this is a greeting, and he's looking for present blessing to those he is writing to. And they come from the God who is, the God who is presently upon the throne, the God who is available to them. So I take it that's the thought there. Now, just explain your second point again, if you don't mind. The second point, we would expect consistency of language would demand which is, which was, and which shall be. He uses the verb to be in the first two, is and was, and then changes to the verb to come. Uh, Is there any reason for that? Because which is, was, and shall be would impress us with the eternity of deity. Yes, quite so. The only answer I have to that, I hadn't thought of the question. Uh, That's the first thing. But my initial response, but I'll be glad you obviously considered it. I'm sure you're going to give us help on it. But I I take it that when it says which is to come would show that despite the judgment and despite the censures that will be seen throughout the book, this is the God who is still to come in all his day. Nothing will alter his existence, nothing will alter his purpose or his person towards his people. I I, I had wondered, if it had said, and which shall be, that would have just emphasized God's future existence. But when he says, and shall come, he was emphasizing God's future intervention. That's good. That this God will actually come. come. And when you get to chapter 11 and chapter 16, where this title occurs, he's described as which was or which is and was, and the which is to come is left out because he has come. He has come to it. That's very good. Yes, thank you very much. That's very good. I notice that Mr. Newbery and the clause which is to come would render it the coming one. Right. Is that preferable or is it better as we have it in the authorised? Well, he, he is always the ever coming one in that sense. But I think the way it's structured, and I think it's reliable the, the way that you've stated, <laughs> would show that there, is, there are these stated times within the book where it's going to be shown and made clear. Now, notice also, let us come from that, and, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Some help on that? Are we all happy that this is the this is the term that shows the plenitude of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit? The nothing more to That's good. One point I would really like personal help on. We are very, very, very familiar. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul never sends greetings from the Holy Spirit. Why do we find that here? Or is there any obvious reason? Well, it's not, it's not so much the greetings, is it? As the, I take it, it's the, it's the expression of grace and peace, not merely in the form of greeting. I'm not questioning you, with your wording, but it's more the fact that it, I'm trying to emphasize the grace and peace, which can only come... Remember, this is to the seven churches. We haven't moved into the later part of the book. So he's writing to seven assemblies, as Mr. McShane asked us to emphasize earlier. And the saints in these assemblies will need to know and experience the ministry of the Spirit of God to them. And it's only in the power of the Spirit of God, uh, we read, for instance, uh, uh, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the uniting bond of peace, so that there's a sense in which you can see the activity of the Spirit of God amongst the the saints. 
Would you be happy with that? Yeah. Um, have we, I, I wondered again, this is just right. a suggestion, that with Paul, uh, in Paul's writings, great members of uh, the Holy Spirit is here, yes. indwelling. Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace comes from them. But when it gets to John, John knew about the indwelling Holy Spirit coming, but he of says course. the Spirit is before the throne. Yes. So the Holy Spirit is not seen here. No. So greetings can be sent from him, whereas you couldn't send greetings from a person who is with you. That's Paul's reading. Right, I can see that. The other thing is that uh, it, it, we should remember that uh, this is to the seven churches, you see, to the seven churches. And it's the testimony on earth that we have the power of, of grace and peace that is said. Right, let us move to the third. Ex third Mr. Baker, I was just going to make a suggestion before yes. you move on there. Yes. In connection with the division of the book, yes. isn't it glory in the chapter 1, his glory? And in connection with the churches, his grace shown in connection to, with the churches and then his government from chapter 4 onwards. Well, that's very nice. I can see that order is there. Now, let us also notice, thank you, Mr. Lennox, we notice also uh, here, and from Jesus Christ. Notice that, uh, just a, a little incidental point, but I think it's important for our younger believers, but well, we all need to note these things anyway, is that uh, we have evidences of deity in a triune way. That's, that's what I'm just trying to underline at the moment. Notice the expression, from and peace from him which is to come. And then, and from the seven spirits. And from Jesus Christ. The equality of divine persons. Uh, it's a small point, but it's a fundamental point. And from, and from, and from. The equality of divine persons. Now let's look at the Lord Jesus. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Have we some help on these statements now? Was the faithful witness during his lifetime here below, though it still continues, and then his experience of death and so on, and then his purpose in the future, the prince of the kings of the earth? Good. That's, that's so you're thinking of his earthly ministry, his present ministry, mm -hmm. and his future ministry. Yes. Uh, isn't it strange that those uh, thoughts uh, come in again into Psalm 89? I suppose you've noticed that, have you? The faithful witness, for instance, and, and so on, is in, in that Psalm, verse, uh, is Psalm uh, 89, verse 27, for instance. Uh, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Good. And then uh, verse 36 of that Psalm. He, his seed shall endure forever on his throne as the sun before me. And then verse 37. Uh, it shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I've never noticed the connection. That's interesting. Thank you. Jim, would it be possible to see an encouragement here to the tried and oppressed believers in the seven churches? Jesus Christ is their good example as the faithful witness who led down his life and witnessed before Pontius Pilate, they're being called to do the same before the Caesars and his delegates and so on. That's they're being nice. challenged, aren't they, to burn incense to Caesar and so on. Then he's been through death and emerged in resurrection. Some of them would die, as we'll see. And then um, in a day when Rome's power seemed absolute, that's not really as it really is. He's the prince 
of the kings of the earth. That's very nice. I can see that. That's very nice. I trust you all got that. It's an encouragement to show the saints that the Lord has been through all the circumstances to which his people must be called to pass in suffering and affliction. That's very good. Uh, now, let's come to this difficult part of the verse at the end of verse 5. Unto him that loved us. Unto him that loveth us. It's, uh, it's interesting to notice that the way in which it is written would emphasize his present and continuous love, who loveth us, and hath loosed us, um, and washed us from our sins by his blood. Are we happy with the amendment that we've made, loosed us? <coughs> no. I know it all depends upon the letter in the, in the Greek language, is not it? Well, there are two things I want to say, and that maybe not help us a bit, but I'll tell you this much. All right. Uh, to change it over, you drop out a letter. Now, it's far easier leaving out a letter than adding one, if you're copying. All right. We'll give you that. But a kingdom of priests, they weren't loosed, they were washed before they were priests. Well, yes, I can quite see that. I'm a bit on the other side. <laughs> yes, go on. I want to hear well, well, the, uh, what Mr. McShane has said is, is very true in most cases. It's easier to drop a letter than to add one in. Now, the loosed was it's the shorter word, so they probably did drop a letter, uh, and so on. The the point about Priests being washed. The priests were not washed in blood. No, they were washed in water. I had wondered. I had wondered, now, apart from the textual difficulty, it's a, it's a moot point. I had wondered if there isn't the background of the Exodus here. They were loosed in blood. Exodus 12. They were made a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19. We go to the lampstand in Exodus 25. Mm-hmm. So as... It could well be, as Mr. Machine said, look at a picture from the priest, or it could be the bigger picture of the book of Exodus. So, well, you can mediate between us. Well, I, I, mean, I was just going to say, as you could I'm sitting between you at this time. <laughs> but the point is that I think what we've got to remember, you notice this is a textual problem, and it's no one can prove. Mr. Gilliland or Mr. McShane can prove whether the letter was dropped or not, nor the many scholars, the great scholars of the past. Uh, they've all written on this. So that the, but to me, I think they merge in this sense. That, you know, when we think of the word washed, if you come to that literal word washed, it really means to loose from dirt. And, to, you know, to put whatever, is in, whatever is impure in the garment is, is loosed from it, and that is how it is washed. And I think the main thing is, that there is the thought of cleansing through the blood, Notice the preposition is an instrumental preposition, uh, that word by. So the fact is that by the blood, whichever way you want to read it, there's not... Mr. Bentley, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the opportunity to comment on this. Have you a comment to make on this? Oh, no, no, I'm agreeing. Thank you. I'm just uh, worrying something else. All right. I I just didn't want to leave you out. Oh, no, no, no. These other two brethren have taken the say. What are you thinking about loosed or washed? I was more concerned about the mention of the blood significantly in the book. Yes. And uh, each time it is mentioned, I thought there was a realm in view. Uh, uh, what? A realm. A realm. You see? Yeah. Uh, a situation in view in each, each mention of the blood. Right. Which no need to go into now. Uh. So here I thought it was from the stain of sin. 
which would suggest, which would support the washing. That's what I thought. All right. Yes. Well, there you are. Um, personally, I'm quite happy with that, as you heard earlier. But I do think that we've got to remember, as we've said, we're dealing with a textual difficulty. But it doesn't alter the fact. Look at the passage: "Unto him that loveth us and washed us or loosed us from our sins." What, whichever way you look at it, we've been loosed from sin. We've been washed from sin. Whichever word you use, we're free from sin. That's the point about the blood. Our brother brought in a parallel in relation to Exodus and Leviticus, and that can be done. We can see those parallels in the Old Testament. We can't prove those things in relation to textual matters, but they've been very interesting. And I think we should take that away. I'm not trying to evade an issue. I think that's the way you're going to look at it. Now, I think our brother Pryor wants to come. Yes, before I make my, uh, my contribution, can I just mention that I, perhaps I'm not the only one who's having a bit of difficulty picking up Mr. Gilliland. Perhaps you could just pull your microphone an inch or two nearer. Okay, thanks, Thank brother. You. Right. Um, this, this passage that we're looking at from the middle of verse 5, unto him that loved us, this is not actually a part of the revelation, is it? This is, as I judge, John's reaction. This is a doxology that seems to spring from John's lips. It's John's...